Well, it's it's an apt analogy, but that I mean, Don, that's fiction. That would never happen. Nobody would ever do that. <laughs> How could that possibly happen? <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by snow in October. It is way too early for snow, guys. I thought that was a rock band. Snow in October? Yeah, kind of like, you know, Flight of Seagulls or Flock of Seagulls. Might as well be. Anyway, for those who don't know, it snowed here in October in Boston. And it was, I don't know about you guys, but I just found it to be one more insult of 2020. Oh, I loved it. I thought it was great. You did? Nope, not me. It was beautiful. It was it was pretty, but it's too early for that stuff. I, I'm just you know. Yeah, and and yesterday it was 75 degrees. That is true. I mean, we've had. I can't. I probably shouldn't be complaining because the weather's been beautiful. But anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am here as always with Dr. Chris Gill. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Matthew from the Department of Global Health, and once again back in the third chair is Dr. Don Thea. Welcome, Don. Thanks, Matt. Also from the Department of Global Health. So as a reminder, if you can head on over to the Population Health Exchange website, that's www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning, where you find all kinds of great programs and public health learning tools. Uh, We also want to remind you that the PHX Winter Institute is coming up in January of 2021. It'll be featuring this year. Data to Dashboards, Lean Management in Healthcare, Essentials of Biostatistics with SAS, JMP, and a free webinar on alcohol policy during COVID. So definitely check that out on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. And also, if you can give us a, a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your podcast site is, guys, we have a we have a new review that I got to oh, read out to you guys. Really? Oh. Yes. So the review is entitled A Must Listen for Public Health Nerds. And it says it's a <laughs> five star rating. It says great podcast where the team analyze a journal article with a level of detail and chuckles you wish your own journal club did. Very topical articles and great engagement with the research issues of the day. And that is a review from Great Britain. I think it's your mother again, Matt. Yeah, she does. She she sets up accounts in other countries uh, just so that she can uh, give us some positive feedback. So she's so nice. She is really. Could anyway, be one of my rallies. One of your rallies? <laughs> yeah. Is that is a real that thing? Have in the UK? Rallies? <laughs> yeah, my rallies. I, I, I lived in the UK for a period of time. Never heard that, but I will trust you. Uh-huh. Anyway, now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on the effect of social media on vaccination, or at least vaccine awareness. And in the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about a group of Western states in the U.S. agreeing to review COVID vaccine data before making a vaccine available. And when we picked this topic, there wasn't actually any news about a candidate vaccine. So I'll be curious to to see whether or not your thoughts on this have changed since in the over the past couple of days. And then finally, in our Amazing and Amusing, we'll get into some things that just make us laugh out loud or blow our minds. So let's get into segment one. So we're going to talk about an article which looked at using social media to influence vaccine uptake. Obviously something that is particularly timing at the moment with a potential COVID vaccine on the way and vaccine hesitancy being measured to be fairly or reasonably high, at least in the U.S., It was published in in the journal PLOS One, and it was entitled Using Social Media Influencers to Increase Knowledge and Positive Attitudes Towards the Flu Vaccine. So this was obviously not about COVID specifically. It was by first author Erica Beneve, I think, of the Department of Health Communications in the Public Health Good Projects in New York. And there really wasn't any press headlines for this one. This was just one that we thought was interesting. So, Don, can you start us off by telling us what this study was about? Yeah, uh, absolutely, Matt. This was my choice, and I thought that this was actually quite an interesting study. And and it's it's really 
based on the fact that this concept of vaccine hesitancy has been a problem in infectious diseases and public health for a while with increasing sort of distribution. And we've got a number of celebrities that are promulgating this idea that vaccines are actually harmful. And um, I, I, I find that we in the public health community are asking all the time, how do we combat this vaccine hesitancy? And and especially given what's happened with COVID over the last year, it this this refusal to consider vaccines has taken on almost a, a, a political division. And yeah. I think we're really at a loss in terms of how to how to as a public health community how to deal with this. And you know, by by merely stating and restating the facts, I think that we have a very limited ability to be able to influence people. So so this group sort of took a page from the private sector and from the marketing efforts of the private sector to try to come up with an innovative and different way to influence public opinion. And what they did was they, apparently there's software that collates influencers, social media influencers, and they've got a database, I think of about a million, a million point two influencers. And they went to this, this database and they found influencers, they call them micro-influencers. These are people that are in social media and have between 500 and, and a, a thousand or is it 10,000 followers? 10,000. 10,000 followers. And they identified influencers who had followers in certain um, geographic areas. And they specifically wanted to focus on the Hispanic community and the black community because influenza flu shot uptake rates in those communities are especially Low. So what they wanted to do was try to um, address the low levels of flu shot uptake in those populations. And what they did is they they had six or seven core ideas that they wanted the influencers to incorporate in in their means of doing social influencing without having a CDC brand or a specific kind of a brand, but but have them create these messages and send them out to their followers in a way that is consistent with the, the, the kind of social media relationship that they have with their followers. And this was done in various states that were part of the Kaiser Permanente service regions, a bunch of states in the West and a bunch of a few states in the East. So then what, what they did is they, they then went to, they had these influencers sort of apply their trade for a period of time. They counted the number of contacts that these influencers were able to achieve, which is a, a like or a comment or some sort of interaction to indicate that the, that the followers were interacting with these specific messages. They then went and did a, before, before the, the campaign, they did a, a cross-sectional survey of attitudes as well as practices. And then they did follow-up survey after these campaigns were, were finished. And they, they also did these surveys before and after in areas where the campaigns were not directed. And they had, I believe, 117 influencers and 69,000 engagements, likes, shares, comments. And they reached a total of about 8 million social media users. And then for the survey, they had about 5,000 respondents, uh, half in each group, and they looked at baseline flu shot habits, which were pretty much balanced in the campaign areas as well as the non-campaign areas. And they saw, essentially, that at, the, at the end, when they did the analysis, they found that there was a substantial increase in the kind of beneficial message understanding and uptake of the of the social media users in those areas where the campaigns were active. And in fact, there was also a, if you looked at the um, respondents who had had some interaction with these influencers, those respondents actually had an increase in the number of flu shots that they actually obtained. So it seemed as if, you know, I think, I think that the, the approach the survey approach is flawed and it has limitations, but it seems as if there was a signal there in terms of the recipients of these social media messages to change their attitudes towards flu shots, as well as to change their specific actions if they specifically had engaged in one of these social media influencers. So I thought it was, you know, I thought it was not conclusive. 
but it was interesting and sort of broadens our toolkit in terms of being able to thwart this this ever-increasing threat of uh, vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, clearly. I mean, clearly to me, this is this is one that you chose and we all were interested in because it's such an important topic. And it's just a problem that we have not figured out. I mean, misinformation is, whether you're talking about vaccinations or, or anything else, is so hard to combat. And simply, you know, providing good information and assuming that it's going to get out there is has not worked. Worked, um, worked yeah. And so I, one of the things that I would just just emphasize some of the details of this, it was specifically they were specifically targeting African-Americans and Hispanics because those were populations with low vaccine, flu vaccination rates and distrust right. of the some distrust of the medical community. And so, you know, they were specifically going after those. And then one other thing that I would just highlight is you mentioned that number, which is a, a really impressive number of something like um you know, 10 million people reached, but but the actual number of engagements with these social media, you know, tweets or whatever they were, was about 60,000. So the 10 million is often, you know, sort of people who see the information might go by in their feed, but they don't necessarily engage with it in any way. I'm not totally clear on what engagement means. I don't know if that means you actually have to click on something or not. No, they, they defined that, Matt. They said it was uh, there was a, a like, a share, or a comment Got on, it. A, on a specific media post. Got it. So, so, so sixty nine thousand is not trivial. No, not at all. And and particularly since we were only talking about a, a modest number of of these micro influencers, so to get it out, you know, get messages out to sixty thousand people is is you know potentially a big deal. And clearly, not a particularly expensive way to go about it. They paid these influencers, you know, by the the amount that they were were engaging. And you know, it could make up to like three, three hundred fifty or so dollars. So we're not talking about a, a large number, a large amount of money. So, Chris, what's your what was your take on? I'm curious, both on the quality of the evidence, but also on the approach itself. Well, I thought the the concept was really interesting and attractive. So, you know, at sort of a high level, what they're they're arguing for is a is a grounds up sort of grassroots advocacy you know, sort of based in this, this idea that people are going to respond better or, you know, more favorably or with, with greater engagement to people who are like them, people that they see as being part of their community, as opposed to these sort of like ethereal features, you know, you know uh, individuals from CDC or even experts like Paul Offit, who people don't know, right? And so they're, uh, you know, I think in, in a sense, you can sort of see that this is a counter strategy to the anti-vaccine movements. And, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to, separate that a little bit from vaccine hesitancy, but I'll come back to that, which has for many years used a sort of anecdotal, you know, this happened to me, this happened to a friend of mine, sort of very personal, very like, you know, I, you know, I am your friend, this thing happened to me, I am warning you, which is a, you know, we know is not a, is not a scientifically rigorous approach to looking at vaccine safety because it's all driven by anecdote. No, um, but the but the, but the, the tyranny, the, right? The tyranny of the of the anecdote is is a very real thing that you that's right. You can have all the evidence in the world in favor of vaccination, but you you meet a friend who had a bad experience, and that is far more influential. That's right, and so they're they're applying that same strategy in reverse, and so I thought that was very clever, and uh, I think it, 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 this 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 might actually be a brilliant way of, of approaching the problem. As to the study itself, I, I guess I came away lukewarm and basically unpersuaded. But I also felt that it, it was they were sort of setting themselves up in some degree to, to make it difficult to show an effect, yeah, because you know many millions sounds like a lot of exposures, but when we're sort of in the in the on the realm of Facebook or Instagram or, or you know, whatever platforms they were using, you know, 17 million exposures is, is nothing in the grand scheme. You know, we're, we're talking about billions of billions of, of messages going back and forth across the world, and and the the effect sizes that they they document. Are, are modest, you know, they show p-values in the intervention clusters that, you know, there seem to be more positive effects than in the controls, but overall the, the differences were not, were not really striking. And I felt that, you know, this is sort of an ecological analysis in a way because there's no, it's not easy to, to draw a direct link between those who receive these messages or engage with these messages and, and what their attitudes were. And the, the more sort of sort of bottom line effect of data was that the actual vaccination rates didn't really change. 
they were 44.4% in the campaign area and 42% in the control area. So really no, no different. Oh, but, um, but, 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 I, but I did feel that the, the methodology would have made it hard to show a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree with that, Chris. And I think the methodology has a lot to be desired, but, but I, they did say that there was no, there was a minimal difference across the groups. But when you did a sub-analysis and you stratified it by the people who reported seeing the post itself, mm-hmm. it was 50, 50 versus 43%. So that may be a little bit more of a signal there. One of the other limitations that that, that, that their approach has is that the, the, the survey that was done before the intervention and the survey that was done after the intervention were both cross-sectional studies that were um, with different people. So it wasn't a matched cohort Design. So we can't really say in an individual who encountered this message, there was a change from before to afterwards. But of those people afterwards who, who admitted that they had had some interaction or had heard these messages, there seemed to be a small increase in flu shots. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think it's it, it's all possible that this worked and that it's a causal relationship. I, I just feel that I was not persuaded by it. And even that last sort of more favorable data point that you just described, you know, the people who had a favorable opinion of this and then how many of them were likely to have recalled having had a vaccine. I mean, that that just like begs for recall bias. You know, people who, who have a favorable attitude are more likely to report having engaged in the target yeah. behavior. Yeah, so, and there's no verification that they actually did or did not have a vaccine. So to me, this is like hearsay. So I, 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 I ultimately came away from this paper saying, wow, this is a really fascinating idea. My, my, my gut sense is that it, it probably works because this is, this is basically marketing. And this is a, a new and novel marketing technique, and marketing companies around the world are exploiting this idea of using influencers, and they're selling you know millions and millions of dollars worth of product. So, so on one level, it obviously works, right. and and I think on another level, the way we're going at it, you know, we don't have enough Paul Offits that are in the local neighborhood. Like maybe if you lived in Philadelphia and you're down the street from Paul, yeah, you, you could say, yeah, Paul, he's the guy for vaccines. I'm with vaccines, but I I I, I think they're they're. They're right that the way we're going about this effort to promote vaccines and to counter the anti-vaccine movement is 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 failing and is not going to win because the way that people are influenced is now through social media and we can't win that battle with there aren't enough Paul Offits in the world to pull this off. I, I, I totally agree, and I the one thing I would say I mean I would put this in the in the category of absence of evidence is not evidence of absence that right. that that this doesn't this the, the data just wasn't strong enough to prove that. They really move the needle on vaccination. There was another data point that I thought was kind of interesting, which is they they did demonstrate that that people, a reasonable number of people who were targeted with the campaign, then clicked on the link and went to the website for the campaign and entered their zip code to try and find a place where they could get a flu shot. Now that is not, obviously that is not proof of getting a flu shot or an increase in getting a flu shot, but it's, you know, it was, it was just another data point to suggest that people were engaging a little bit beyond simply just seeing a message and therefore, you know, reacting to, they want me to have a favorable view of vaccines. So I'll say I have a a favorable view of vaccines, but the, the evidence I do think was pretty weak. I mean, as, as Don, as you say, this was serial cross-sectional studies. So you don't have people followed up over time even the the serial cross sectional nature of it, I thought, could have been dealt with a little better in that they could have, you know, done a kind of difference in differences approach where they adjusted for differences in the samples or the or the areas at, at baseline, which they didn't really do and and potentially could have done. But you know, there were just also some other things that I thought, you know, if you really if you really were trying to run a uh, study to demonstrate conclusively that this worked or didn't work, you would you would go about this in a in a different way. Now I I don't know, but based on where the the study came out of, I suspect that this is not a a group that is a you know a, a group that is primarily focused on research. I think they're a group that is primarily focused on on you know changing public health practice, and therefore. You know, you can you can sort of understand that that they were not designing a study with the rigor that, you know, you would if you were you know applying for NIH funding and doing a cluster randomized trial. That said, I am with 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 Chris on this in that I think this is you know enough information 
to say that that this is worth pursuing in a in a more rigorous way because it it intuitively seems like it's something that's work and there's certainly a lot of evidence that this kind of approach can work. One of the things that I thought was really interesting that I think it's worth just noting as as Don as you said, they used micro influencers. You know, they they specifically went after people who had between I think what was it 500 and 10,000 followers. Yeah. Rather than going to celebrities and saying, you know, right. having some, you know, super influence or, or or just a a real big influencer on social media. Because they want what they want is for this to seem like it's coming from your buddy, and the question is: Are there are there any ethical issues there? Because of course they are paying these people to put out these these messages. Ethical issues in terms of what, Matt? In terms of I am essentially paying your friend to convince you mm-hmm. to get a flu shot. Now I I don't see how this is any different from any other marketing where you know you're you're trying to get somebody to buy a you know, buy Cheerios, but, you know, it's just sort of in the context of public health, right. you know. Like the Cash we, App. Exactly. Right? We love the Pod Save America people, and and yet when they start going on and on and on about, like, this new, like, sugar-free, gluten-free, you know, cereal that's all based on protein and tastes just like Lucky Charms, and I'm just going, really? This is, del- you know... Come on, we're being influenced here. I got, I got the funny thing is now that you bring that up, you know, one of the things that the Pod Save America guys or, or do. Or the mushroom, the mushroom based coffee. I exactly. mean, that just sounds horrible. No, it sounds terrible. The one of the things that the Pod Save America guys do is that when they do the ads, they will often like read the notes in the ad copy. So they'll say things like, insert your personal experience with the brand. <laughs> yes. Which, you know, you, you like you listen to that and you think, okay, so that's what every other program is doing. Like they're they're being told, like, tell us your personal experience, how much you love the brand. And it's like, oh, I don't know. It just makes me not want to right. engage at all. I, I think I think one of the one of the, the, the sort of counterpoints to that is that they 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 really focused on influencers who post about things like parenting and travel, health and wellness influencers. So, you know, I think that those people are probably, you know, they are being paid and you call into question their motivations while being paid. But otherwise, I think that they probably are influencers who are looking for good messages, healthful messages about wellness and stuff. So, you know, I think that that adds a little bit more credence. I don't know about the influencers who had to do with photography or fashion, apparently, which was <laughs> one of other ones, but what I wonder if any to where we can get it. I wonder if any of these influencers happen to be Olivia Jade Gianulli. <laughs> who is that? Olivia Jade, she's the daughter of Lori Laughlin and Massimo Gianulli of the uh, oh, you know the, the college uh, entrance scam. Is she uh, an influencer? Olivia, Olivia Jade is an influencer with some like Many millions of followers to you know who, who take her advice on cosmetics and such. I assume or that you did. are one of them. Uh, well, I, I don't use enough cosmetics to be influenced, but I, 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 otherwise, I'm sure I would be. <laughs> so, so the the last point that I wanted to bring up, just about the methodology, just because I think it's worth commenting on, even though I think we all are pretty much in agreement that the the methodology wasn't sufficient to really convince us necessarily that this is in this instant worked. But one of the things that I thought was interesting was they, they described their methodology for recruiting their sampling for the cross-sectional survey. At least I, this is the way I understood it was purposively recruited samples. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, to me, that sounds like cherry picking. Well, it sounds to me like, you know, you're you're recruiting somebody and then you're saying, you know, do you know anybody who, you know, who likes uh, to talk about vaccination and can you refer them to us to be in the study? I'm, I'm sure that's not it, but I'm just saying that the, that's what the term connotes in my head. And therefore, you know, you do wonder who exactly is is in this this sample. It doesn't seem like it's a it's a random sample of any population and therefore, you know, again, makes it harder to figure out what's really going on in these, you know, in the in the evidence part of this. But, mm-hmm. you know, still, I stand by my my feelings that I, I definitely want to see more because I think the approach certainly has promise. And, you know, if there another study came out, I with a, a different design, I would be would would be interested in, in reading it. Yeah, I think this approach has got legs. Me too. Any other any other comments you guys want to raise before we move on? 
Well, I, I did mention earlier on that I wanted to, to make some comments about vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. You know, Heidi, Heidi Larson, who is uh, she's a medical anthropologist who has spent much of her career focusing on vaccine hesitancy. And she's the principal investigator of a large Gates-funded project called the Vaccine Confidence Project based at the London School. And she's, by the way, the, the wife of Peter Piot, who uh, was or is at the WHO, but you know, a, a, a well-known infectious disease researcher that, that we've all uh, admired, he's, I think, for many years. He's at the London School now. He's yep. at the London School. So there's sort of, a, you know, and, and, and he had, by the way, COVID-19 over the summer. Got no. sick. I had a rough mm. piece of it. Either rough case of it. So uh, anyway, she, she's a very impressive researcher and, and has written some, I think, really interesting and I would say sympathetic takes on the whole idea of vaccine hesitancy. And one of her main con, uh, sort of ideas is that it's, it's not necessarily illogical, that hesitancy should be rational to the degree that if you don't know much about something, shouldn't you be a little bit skeptical before rolling up your sleeve and putting it into your body? And, and she's right. And, and I think what she's calling for is, is rather than sort of this sort of blanket, you know, people who, who reject vaccines are, are irrational, that actually most people who, who are anxious about vaccines are very rational. And some of their ration, you know, their anxiety may be well-founded. You know, we, did, we exploited this, this question in Rachel Mitrovich's DRPH thesis, for example, which is sort of look at different sort of hypothetical scenarios about here's a vaccine that's well studied. Would you take it? Would you reckon, you know, would you take it if you were pregnant? Here's a vaccine that has not been well studied. Would you take it even if you were pregnant? And, and we saw even there that there was, a, a, you know, a spectrum of responses based on, on these hypotheticals, which were ultimately based on comfort and knowledge. And so I, I think that that's an important point. And it, it, it's, it's a very distinct construct from how we think of the, the, the formal, I say formal because it's not necessarily like a, a, a unified group, but the anti-vaccine movement, so-called anti-vaxxers, who are, who are, I think, I'm getting a little more critical here, approaching the problem from a matter of ideology and their arguments to me strike I mean, I feel are very disingenuous. You know, a, a great example, which is a segue into the segment two, is that they were bitterly opposed to all COVID-19 vaccines before there were any COVID-19 vaccines. So it hadn't anything to do with a specific vaccine. It was the idea of vaccines regardless of what kind of vaccines. And so that's that's a matter of faith. That's not a matter of, of, of you know rational anxiety. That's a matter of like, you have decided before you've seen the evidence to damn the evidence. And I think that's a very different approach to to, you know, guiding their understanding their, you know, where they're coming from, then this sort of more larger, you know, generalized anxiety, which may be fueled by the anti-vaccine movement, but is not necessarily uh, wrong, I would say. It's sort of like it's sort of like deciding ahead of time that an election is going to be uh, fraudulent before it actually happens. That actually is a very apt uh, analogy, I think. It's the <laughs> same thing because it, both of them st start with like a rejection of objective truth. Right. Well, it's it's an apt analogy, but that I mean, Don, that's fiction. That would never happen. Nobody would ever do that. <laughs> How could that possibly happen? That would take like some vast, you know, vast conspiracy. That could be way off. too irrational. Way too irrational. <laughs> way too irrational. All right. Well, well. So, so I think those are great points, Chris. And let me let's use that then to jump into segment two because I do think what you're describing is related. And so, what we wanted to talk about in in our second segment is. This proposal, so this is not, you know, normally we talk about a paper or something. This is actually just more of a uh, an idea or, or a process that is actually happening, which is that for those uh, of our listeners who are outside of the U.S. may not be aware of this. In fact, many of our listeners inside the U.S. may not be aware of this, but there has been a lot of concern about the push to a COVID-19 vaccine by the current U.S. government. The push to move it so quickly, potentially motivated by a desire to get it out before the election, although the election has now happened and, and the vaccine did not come out before the election. But there was concern about that. And the concern was that the, the vaccine would be rushed so quickly that we wouldn't actually have the real evidence that we would need to determine whether or not the vaccine was both safe and effective and that it would be rushed into practice. And the problem in addition to all the normal problems that that would create, it would create the additional problem that there are other vaccines that are in the pipeline that may in fact be safe and effective. And if you push out a vaccine that is not safe and effective, it may prevent people from ever wanting to take up a, a vaccine later that is safe and effective. Now, 
a lot has changed since we decided on this as a topic. But the idea for the topic was the western states of the United States. So initially it was California, but then Washington, Oregon and Nevada all agreed to sign on to this decided that they would put together their own COVID-19 scientific safety review work group, which would independently review the safety and efficacy data of any vaccine that was approved by the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States before they would say that it is safe and effective for use within their within their states. Now, I have to admit, I don't truly understand, you know, the the U.S. law well enough to know whether a state could somehow block access to a vaccine that was FDA approved. Chris, maybe that's something that you can you can talk to us about. But, you know, this is the state of where we are in the United States that we are potentially going to have a vaccine that estimates are previously anyway, previous estimates are that anywhere from, you know, only about 60 to 70 percent of the U.S. population has said they would be willing to take a COVID nineteen vaccine, and then I think it's less than that, actually, Matt. Less than that, even? Yeah, uh, yeah. I've, I've I've seen forty and fifty percent, even even among healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. Boy, so you know the, the the process being rushed has the potential to erode trust even further. And so, I guess my question to you both would be: A, how do we get here? Because I mean, you can you can blame this on the current government, but I think this is a a longer process that includes the 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 anti-vaccine movement. But also, you know, is this is this necessary and is this the right way to go? Chris, you want to start us off since you've got some some actual vaccine research or, or more vaccine research than any of us? Sure. So can I expand the context and yeah. and explain what the usual process is? So typically what will happen with a let's say a, a new first in class vaccine like the COVID vaccine is that you know the, the the sponsor that's developing the vaccine would run a series of trials in in collaboration with FDA to define the endpoints for the you know safety and, and efficacy that the regulator would say are acceptable and we know some of these have been like you know talked about like the 50% minimum efficacy standard and of course the the Pfizer vaccine that has just put out a press release a few days ago is touting 90% efficacy so well above the threshold that FDA said would be acceptable now for any first in class vaccine the regulatory review itself is only part of the decision as to whether to license so in in these in the cases where we have a novel vaccine or whether perhaps an existing vaccine is apply, being applied in a vulnerable or novel population like you've taken an adult vaccine and you've moved it into infants what the FDA will do as sort of a, a public relations but also conflict of interest safeguard is to convene something called a VERPAC, which stands for the Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. And this is a group of external scientists who get together and review all of the data that have been presented by the sponsor and then engage in a, in a really quite an intense back and forth series of questions and answers that can last several days with the sponsor where the VERPAC members will basically question about everything. And then the VERPAC itself will issue a recommendation as to whether they think FDA should go ahead and license. Now, once FDA has licensed it, then the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is a, another freestanding committee of outstanding of, of external experts, uh, get together and, and try to establish a policy as to how the vaccine would be used. That's the usual way. So here, what, what, what the Western states are essentially doing is creating their own VERPAC. Right. They have. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're saying it is not enough to simply defer to the external advisory committee designed to provide out, you know, outside expertise and minimize conflict of interests in this critical decision for licensure. But we are, we don't need the political climate has become so poisoned and so distrustful that we have to do it ourselves. In a way, it's almost like using a local influencer. We're saying that the Verpac is is a macro influencer, and now we're going for the micro influencer, which is our local guys who are going to who are going to advise just us Western states and give us that added level of, of, of reassurance that this is on the up and up. And 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 the fact that they they feel that they need to do that, even though one must imagine that the the process is going to be duplicative because the data will be the same. Mm-hmm. Right, strikes me as as such a telling sign of how bad things have come in, in, in this process. Yeah, I it is really concerning to me that we've ended up in a situation like this. Don, what's your what was your reaction to the idea that they would put this together? 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Chris, and I, I think that that was part of the intent. But to me, it's 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 kind of like this evolving kabuki dance. You know, I I think that it was a it was a very loud voice saying describing mistrust of the ability of the FDA to remain independent in the face of what appeared to be an ongoing onslaught by the current U.S. administration, and the fact that thank goodness. The, the, the press release of the result, we still haven't seen the data, but the press release of the results by Pfizer indicating that there's greater than 90% efficacy came out three days after the election, I think has done so much in terms of forestalling a potential tidal wave of doubt about the results of this va- vaccine trial that I, I think there's a world of good that has resulted from that. And I wouldn't be surprised if these, these Western VRPAC alliances sort of take a step back and become much less prominent and, in fact, might even be disbanded because yeah. I think those same issues are, are, are not you know, cracking the facade of the FDA at this mm-hmm. point. And, and I'm so deeply thankful for that. Mm-hmm. So deeply thankful that the results of these trials did not come out before the election, because that would have could have been ruinous. I think. I, I, I'm curious if, if either of you have seen any statement coming out of out of the White House about the Pfizer trial. I have not. And I have to imagine if this was before the election, we would have heard nothing but. No. Right. I, but, however, I read a tweet by the president which lamented the fact that mm-hmm. the, these results came out after the election, sort of you, underscoring so not the about fact. the results, about the timing of the results. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. Do you? Oh my God! But to, to to actually get to that question, I mean, do you think that the results were delayed specifically to come out after the election and not before? Don't know. Yes. I, I have not. I, yes. I mean, I, I'm with Chris. I think they were not because they wanted I would hope to influence. So. I would really hope so because because not, that would it restore faith in Pfizer and their independence from warp speed and all the rest of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I suspect they, they delayed it, not because, again, not because they wanted to interfere or, you know, not interfere with the election so much as they they would be deeply concerned that if they released it a few days before the election, people would not believe them, right. would believe they were pressured and yeah. therefore would have less faith in, in the vaccine. So I, I don't think they did it to, to inter, you know, to, to be, interfering in politics. I think they did it to save the credibility of their vaccine. Absolutely. I mean, the, the lead up to one of these press releases, it, 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 they are so carefully orchestrated and calibrated. And it, 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 it's, it, it cannot be the case that Pfizer only had the results of this like two days ago, right? And released them as soon as they knew. They're like, oh my God, hot off the press. We got to get this out. No, they've known about this for some time. Uh, and no, not and what I've been I read. thinking about. No, Chris, not what I read. What I read was that the DSMB convened on Saturday and and they evaluated the data. They then on Sunday let it be known to the company and the company chose within 24 hours to make the press release. And then, okay, and well, I'm wrong. Whether I'm that's wrong true or not, that's what, that's what I've read is that, is that it really was a weekend deliberation within the DSMB, which was then reported to the company um, administration. Mm. So that's 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 helpful. Yeah, I mean, I do I do lament that we are in this situation in the first place. I mean, I think that we have witnessed so much politicization of science over the past oof, four years plus, and you know, I think that's why we are in a situation where states are trying to go their own way. Chris, I do want to ask you, do you have any insight as to whether a state could block access to a vaccine if they decided that it wasn't safe within, you know, I mean, is that something that they have the authority to do? To the extent that each state usually negotiates with the vaccine manufacturer to purchase the vaccine in bulk. So they're usually done through statewide tenders. This is another example of where vaccines are treated as commodities rather than, rather than as individual level products. Mm. So, it, you know, a big state like California, it, it's quite possible that they, they might have tenders or set of tenders with different manufacturers because their population is so large and a single company might not be able to, to meet their needs. But Massachusetts usually bulks, you know, buys you know, like one version of the meningitis vaccine or one version of the flu vaccine or maybe two versions. If they have like an elderly population, they want the, the more efficacious version for the elderly. But that's generally the way it's done. And so you could imagine that a, a state could say that we're not going to take the Pfizer vaccine, we'll only take the, you know, the, the Moderna vaccine. Mm. I, I could imagine that scenario. 
but it would be it would be odd to do that. Mm. Uh, another thing I just want to mention is that you know Moderna's stock ticked up on news of Pfizer's good news, which is sort of fascinating because you you know they're they're in a race right to who's you know who they all want to be first to market because they're going to you know capitalize on that in terms of you know of selling the most product. They're going to whoever gets to first first is going to make a lot more money than everybody else probably. True, true, but wouldn't isn't the reason why Moderna's stock went up is because Moderna is also testing an, an mRNA vaccine, and therefore, if one works, the other one's probably going to work too. That's my guess too. Is that everyone's reading the tea leaves and saying, "Oh, I bet Moderna is good to go as well." You know, it's it's really you know, there's a lots of opportunity here for armchair speculation. I uh, so, and I'm so all in the, on it. But yeah, no. So one of the things that I I saw you know months and months ago when we were talking about the number of candidate vaccines that were out there was some concern that because so many of the, while there were, you know, tons of different products being tested, that they were, so many of them were really just focused on the, the spike protein such that if one failed, it was reasonable that many of them were going to fail. And therefore the fact that it didn't fail, at least, you know, and I, I, it's premature to say that because we haven't actually seen the data, but that's encouraging news. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's it's very encouraging. The, the problem the problem that I see in terms of actually um, marketing this vaccine is that it's it's going to be required to be kept cold at cold minus chain. minus ninety degrees Fahrenheit, which is only possible through the use of you know double compressor research only freezers. So yeah. there are Wait. some significant logistical problems ahead. Wait, you you don't you don't keep your ice cream in a, a minus ninety freezer? <laughs> no. Like you yeah. want your ice cream really hard. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you want it to break your teeth. Yeah. You well, you want to you want to freeze your Snickers bars at minus ninety. Right. You could throw that or, through a, through a window. <laughs> a triple paint. Right. A granite ice cream sandwich. <laughs> All right. Any any last thoughts on this one? Let's move on to our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And I am I'm going to go first because mine is really short, only because my actual amazing and amusing is really just a thought that I had in reaction to an article that I read. So I I was, you know, flipping through Twitter and somebody linked to an article that was from the Evening Standard goes back to 2017. But the headline of the article is playing Christmas music too early can harm your mental health study finds. <laughs> and it's true. It probably is. It probably is. But the thing is, you know, you read the article and the article is really, it's just clickbait. Uh, I can't even find the, the study that they are referring to. They claim that there is, you know, that, that people who are stuck in stores during Christmas time and forced to listen to Christmas songs over and over and over have suffered in their mental health in some way. But again, I can find no evidence to back this up. I don't really care because I do actually suspect it is probably true. But my reaction to this was, oh, wait, we might get less Christmas music this year because we're going to spend less time in malls and stores and... That is like one upside for me of not being able to go out as much. So, so you're going to say that those of us that have been hermetically sealed in our houses for the last nine months are going to be on balance less depressed because we're going to be less exposed to Christmas music in the malls? Is that what you're saying? I, choo- I choose to believe that. Yes, <laughs> I choose to believe that. I'm not sure, Matt. Yeah, maybe not. Anyway, Chris, what do you got for us? Well, since we're on the theme of COVID-19, you may all remember that that back in the back in the charming days of, of January 2020, there was a lot of speculation that the COVID-19 uh, outbreak was triggered by exposure to pangolins, which are yes. these these strange armadillo-like animals that have no teeth and live in Asia and Africa and and uh, South Asia. And so I was sort of trolling along. And, and of course, this has turned out to be not true. I think the, the genetics are very clear now that it comes from fruit bats. But, fruit bats. Uh, so yeah, the, hor- the horseshoe bat, I think, specifically. So some kind of a fruit bat. I don't so, know what kind of fruit those bats like, but so, probably they, so they like o- lots of fruit. So it's okay to adopt a pangolin now? You may. And in fact, it's a good thing to do because they're they're critically endangered <laughs> in some places. Oh, and so you can take them home and protect them. It's not them. a good thing to do. What are you talking about, Chris? Well, well, you would keep them safe and maybe mate them. And you could like breed them in your basement. Um, okay. That's, that's faulty reasoning. <laughs> well, I so I was I was trolling along and, and you know, the, the prepared mind seizes upon these opportunities. And I saw this paper, which is, is entitled A Checklist of Parasites and Bacteria Recorded from Pangolin. 
from a group of parasitologists. And this is a, a systematic, well, it's a review in the Journal of Parasitic Diseases from 2016. And, and it, it, you know, basically these guys took the whole issue of the parasites and the bacteria that, that, and the, that, that, uh, the pester pangolins, they took this very seriously. So this is a truly scholarly article documenting all the kinds of parasites that pangolins get because they're worried about their survival. And they're thinking like, wow, it's not good that they have hookworm. And so they did this large literature review and that it's filled with useless information of relevance only to people who care about the health of pangolins, which I, I will add myself to because I think they actually are kind of charming. <laughs> Charming. Charming. So I, I, I'm going to just uh, read one section of the paper and then quote a couple of the factoids from it. So there are four pangolin, in case you were wondering, there are four pangolin species in Asia, the Chinese pangolin, the Indian pangolin, the Philippine pangolin, and the Malayan pangolin in Asia. And there are four pangolin species in Africa. These are temminks, ground pangolin, the, the giant ground pangolin, the long-tailed pangolin, and the tree pangolin. Now, in terms of the kinds of critters that infect them, there are many. And now, they make the very salient point that, that pangolins, we have known about pangolins for a very long time, and yet we are only now understanding the parasitology of pangolins. And I think they were vexed by this, because they say that pangolins have been at, at zoos and exhibits since 1892. But the hmm. first report on pangolin parasites of pangolins was in 1927. That, that's like 30 years later. What are we waiting for, folks? I mean, oh. my God, you know, we've taken this so casually, it seems like a crime. So, um, and the, the, <laughs> the first report of bacteria of pangolins was in 1977. It's almost like a hundred years after we see them in zoos and we don't even know like what causes, what would cause tooth decay in pangolins, except they have no teeth. Oh, it's so true, Chris. I, I read, I read pangolin today and I've never seen anything about tooth decay in pangolins. This is so, a total outrage. It's an outrage. It's an outrage. We need to, we need to. And there, are, and there are risks to humans from the parasites that pangolins have. Because did you know, Donthea, that pangolins sometimes can carry Trypanosoma brucei, the cause of African sleeping I sickness? I did not know that. I thought it was just cows. But who knew? Apparently it's cows and pangolins. But it can't okay, be that no, because there's no vector. Well, the mosquitoes, obviously, are trans or the the, the sensi flies, right? Sensi flies, flies, yeah, yeah. the sensi flies. Okay, uh, I changed I changed my mind. I'm not getting a pangolin. <laughs> <laughs> and they also carry toxoplasmosis, just like oh, kitty man. cats. And uh, they uh, have been found to have hookworms and strongyloides and ancelostoma, which is some sort of hookworm. I think I don't remember exactly. Haber probably knows. And, and the Nicator americansis, which is definitely a kind of hookworm. So these are, these are very important vectors of important parasites of humans. And did you know that Nicator americansis, this is an, this is an aside in their own paper, uh, is an occasional parasite of chimpanzees, gorillas, monkeys, dogs, pigs, and rhinoceroses? I did not know that. I found this paper to be absolutely fascinating. And they also have ticks that carry diseases that could potentially transmit to humans, like like amblyoma ticks that can give you certain diseases like ehrlichiosis and mites and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, pity the pangolin. I knew none of this. Pity the pangolin. That's all I have to say. And I, I knew none of this. It's an outrage how little we know about the parasites, the bacteriology of parasites of pangolins. And what I thought was critically missing from this was the virology. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> Especially COVID-19 specific virology. <laughs> when I, you know, Chris, when I take my kids to the, to the zoo and they see a pangolin, the first thing they ask me is, why don't we know more about the virology? Well, the thing I, I, I find fascinating is that they have these overlapping, like, scales that like like stegosaurus scales stegosaurus yeah. scales and they're very thick and yet it talks about all the ticks that that feed on them and like how do those ticks like get in there do they get in between the scales or how do they do it i don't it's think i've ever, i don't think i've ever actually heard a, a parasite rant like we no. just heard i don't know one of the one of the first one of the first things i ever remember about chris was when i one of like the first meetings we ever had he said something along the lines of he named some parasite and said that is my third favorite parasitic disease. <laughs> so, you know, it's a passion. It's a rank. There's a rank list. There you go. How far down does that list go, Chris? Oh, I could probably go down to ten. Yeah. <laughs> All right, pangolins. Okay, but, John. Know, what do you? Some of them get on the list because they were a fluke. 
Oh, that was terrible. Oh, Lord. Ouch. Terrible. Oh, I'm Nick, insane. I'm Nick, insane. We can't, we can't air that, Nick. That's, oh, oh, that's yeah. too painful Nick, for our listeners. That. That, that just, I can't make it to prime time. Oh, it's one of my best jokes. Don, what do you, what do you got for us? All right. Well, since, since uh, Chris has gone over, over time again, I'll keep it short like you did. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, as always. So I have a paper to report that appeared in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis in 1974. Mm. And the title is The Unsuccessful Self-Treatment of a Case of Writer's Block by Dennis Upper, Mm. who apparently was working at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Brockton, Massachusetts. Oh, yeah, right around the road. And this paper is exactly one page long, (laughs) consists of the title, what I just read, and then three quarters of the way down the, the page is one word that says references, after which it is completely blank. Nice. And then they have <laughs> at the very bottom of this one page comments by reviewer A. And mm-hmm. reviewer A says, I have studied this manuscript very carefully with lemon juice and x-rays and have not detected a single flaw in either design or writing style. I suggest it to be published without revision. Clearly, it is the most concise manuscript I have ever seen. Yet it contains sufficient detail to allow other investigators to replicate Dr. Upper's failure. In In comparison with other manuscripts I get from you containing all that complicated detail, this one was a pleasure to examine. Love it. <laughs> Surely we can find a place for this paper in the journal, perhaps on the edge of a blank page. <laughs> <laughs> That's love so it. great. That's I so love great. it. Do we, do we, we uh, Nick, do we, uh, do we have a link for some of the papers that we... Uh, that we talk about during this podcast and can we uh i think i think we could we can put out a link so we can we can link to that yeah all right so i'll send it to you nick well that is the end of our program if you get any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on you can tweet us at at pop healthy x or you can tweet me at at prof matt fox or don at, at d theo one or chris but he doesn't actually check twitter at id.gill or you can find us in the population health exchange website at www.pophealthex.org we want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing in the Four Seasons Editing Studio Bunker. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>